Man, we were singing this passage that we're going to be studying this morning. Um, a couple things just jumped out, but the third line in that When Trials Come song by the Gettys, when I am weary with the cost, I see the triumph of the cross, so in its shadow I shall run till he completes the work begun. That is, that's right where we're, we're at this morning. That's where we live. Uh, that's where we need to live, but that's certainly right where we're at this morning in Luke 18. The passage in Luke 18, verses 1 to 8, is all about prayer and perseverance, especially in the face of, of trial and suffering um, and the struggles um, in this life. So if you want to turn uh, in your Bibles to Luke 18, this passage is found on Page 1046, if you're using the Pew Bible, or if you need a Bible, there's one there in front of you, and it's on that page. Um, while you're turning there, and before we read it, I want to just share a few um, paragraphs from a little article that really did change my life. You know, people throw that around, and it gets so cheap that it doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, but for me personally, when it comes to understanding prayer and actually um, learning how to pray, this was one of the most important things I ever read, and it's only about three pages long. I've referenced it, I think, a couple years back, and then just this past Friday, I think, or two Fridays ago in the men's meeting, but um, it's a little article um, by a guy named David Wells, who used to teach, or maybe still does teach, um, systematic theology at Gordon-Conwell up in Boston. Um, So... This was paradigm-shaping, life-changing for me, and I hope that it will be so for you as well if you already don't view things this way. So he writes this. It's, the title of it is Prayer, Rebellion Against the Status Quo. Okay? So it must be asserted that petitionary prayer, where we're asking for things, only flourishes where there is a twofold belief. First, that God's name is hallowed too irregularly. His kingdom has come too little, and his will is done too infrequently. Second, that God himself can change this situation. Petitionary prayer, therefore, is the expression of the hope that life as we meet it, on the one hand, can be otherwise, and on the other hand, that it ought to be otherwise. It is therefore impossible to seek to live in God's world on his terms, doing his work in a way that's consistent with who he is without engaging in regular prayer. He says to give up that worldview or that twofold belief is to strike a truce with what is wrong in this world. Raise the white flag. So he writes, why then don't we pray as persistently as we talk? The answer, quite simply, is that we don't believe it will make any difference. We accept, however despairingly, that the situation is unchangeable, that what is will always be. This is not a problem about the practice of prayer, but rather about its nature, or more precisely, it's about the nature of God and his relationship to this world. To to come to an acceptance of life as it is, to accept it on its own terms, which means acknowledging the inevitability of the way it works, is to surrender a Christian view of God. 
this resignation to what is abnormal has within it the hidden and unrecognized assumption that the power of God to change the world, to overcome evil by good, will not be actualized. Nothing destroys petitionary prayer and with it a Christian view of God as quickly as resignation. At all times, Jesus declared we should pray and not lose heart, thereby acquiescing to what is. Then last paragraph I'll quote here. What then is the nature of petitionary prayer? It is, in essence, rebellion. There's other kinds of prayer, thanksgiving, praise, okay, but petitionary prayer he's talking about. In essence, it's rebellion. Rebellion against the world and its fallenness. The absolute and undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. It is in this, its negative aspect, to refuse every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. As such, it is itself an expression of the unbridgeable chasm that separates good from evil. The declaration that evil is not a variation on good, but its antithesis. Now, this rebellion doesn't mean you take up arms. And it's not that all the enemies are out there and we just need to rebel. It's, I'm actually more excited about food than I am about Jesus. Man, that is abnormal. Just one example. I mean, there's a gazillion examples, okay? So, those words, that paradigm was really life-changing, life-shaping for me, and I hope it helps you as well. But even more, I hope and pray that Jesus' words this morning in Luke 18 will change our lives. So let's read Luke 18, 1 to 8, and pray briefly again, and then we'll dive into our study. Now, Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I'll give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she'll wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Lord, please give us eyes to see. Not just ink on the page, but your character, your truth revealed in the pages of your holy inspired word on the lips of our Lord and King and Savior, Jesus. Please give us ears to hear. Please rescue us from any indifference or apathy or coldness to you. Drive away the distractions and give us 
grace to be riveted on your voice and what you have to say to us. Help us to realize that we are coming to actually hear from you and that you are alive and present and active and you have purposes for our being here this morning. This is not just going through the motions. It's not by accident. You have divine intention for our time. And so, Lord, cause your will for this time to be done. Cause your word, your truth to rain down on the desert-like nature of our hearts so that life the life of faith, the strength of faith, the strength of persevering faith and faithful prayer is grown as we grow in the knowledge, grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So we need your help and we pray that you would grant it now as we study your word. We invite your spirit to convict us to shine the light in the dark corners to expose the areas we need to be honest with ourselves about and with you and with others and to trust you see where we we bought all kinds of lies and and we need to trust you Lord for those who are just broken down and completely depressed and discouraged. They've lost heart. Would you please touch them this morning and encourage them? And may they know it's from you. May they know your love and care for them in that very encouragement. So come and have your way with us, Lord, for the sake of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so why this parable? There's an outline in the bulletin if that's helpful for you to follow along. What's the point here? Why is Jesus telling us this parable? And sometimes portions of Scripture we have to, we have to read and study and think, like, what's, what's going on? Why is he telling us this? But here, there's no guessing, okay? He doesn't keep us guessing. He doesn't make it implicit. Luke comes right out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and tells us the purpose of the parable. Look at verse 1. Now, Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they, disciples, so if you are a disciple, you're in that they, we ought to pray and not to lose heart. Okay, pretty clear. And we need to actually see the organic connection between losing heart and prayerlessness. Okay, it, it actually kind of goes both ways, kind of a self-perpetuating cycle. But there, there are other reasons for prayerlessness, sure, certainly. You know, we're busy, blah, 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 blah. Okay, but Jesus here is tying prayerlessness to growing weary and giving up. Why? Because in the face of injustice or opposition or a continual struggle, and it doesn't seem like God is doing anything, he's not answering, he doesn't hear me, he must not care, what good is it? You throw up your hands. Those things are linked. So a few things before we get into the parable itself. A little bit of context. A couple, it's been a couple of weeks. So remember the end of chapter 17 that we looked at a few weeks back? Look at verse 22. He's telling the disciples they need to be ready. They need to realize what's coming. 
He said to the disciples, the day will, days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So you'll be really susceptible to deception. Oh, maybe the answer's over there. Here he is. There he is. No, no, no. When I come back, you won't be able to miss it. So don't buy those lies. But first, I'm going to suffer and die. You think I'm going to set the kingdom up? No. I'm going to die first. Suffer many things. Be rejected by this generation. Which means, if you're going to follow me, you're also going to suffer. And things will be hard before it all ends. So, verse 33 of chapter 17, whoever seeks to keep his life, if you try to save your life in this life, your comfort, your security, your reputation, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will preserve it. Okay, so you can see why a word about not losing heart, persevering in faith is appropriate at this point in Luke. As one guy sums it up, last name Linneman, um, a church that's persecuted and oppressed cries fervently for vindication. But as one day follows another, doubt can gnaw away at faith. And the question will be raised whether the day of the Lord will ever come. It's the same thing going on in 2 Peter 3. That's why we read that this morning. So we may not be persecuted like that or like that guy Bouchon out in that video in the lobby, but we can still grow weary and lose heart. We can allow the hard things in our lives internally around us to get us down and we just start to throw up our hands spiritually. We pray, nothing seems to change. And slowly we lose our grasp on the solid promises of God's word. Hopelessness, okay, for, for a, a change, a brighter future, hopelessness always leads to paralysis or apathy or despair. So we need this word from Jesus. He's gracious to give it to us. Second thing to notice, that's a little context there. Second thing is that this word that's translated as ought in verse 1, you see it there, that we ought to pray and not to lose heart, is actually a special word in the book of Luke. It usually is translated as must. There's urgency and necessity tied in with this word. It often carries some serious theological freight. We'll consider some more of that freight later. But read it again here. Let me translate it as must so that you can hear what Luke is saying. Now Jesus was telling them parables to show, or literally toward the end, that at all times they must pray and not lose heart. So what is being said here, Jesus is not giving good advice. He's giving a command, but we're going to have to consider the nature of that command. He's not saying you should really do this. It's important. It's stronger than that. You must do this. Luke is saying we need, we must pray and not lose heart. We'll consider that some more in a moment. But let's get to the parable itself. The unjust judge and the undaunted widow, verses 2 to 5. So he gave this parable in a certain city. There's a judge who didn't fear God nor respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I'll give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she'll wear me out. Not a complicated parable. It's not hard to picture, not hard to understand. Here's a powerful judge. In that day and age, he's a man, and he's a judge, and he has power. And there's a powerless widow. Okay, In the Bible, widows are the epitome. They're the personification of the helpless poor. The very ones that Jesus came to preach good news to. Back in Luke 4. 
So this seems like an impossible situation. She's weak. She's got no leverage. Not only is she a woman, okay, which in that society, again, that's a strike against her. No ability to bribe. She doesn't have the cash to turn his head and get a decision. There's no clout, no social standing to influence or motivate this unjust judge. And apparently she has no kinsmen. Okay, so not only does she have, doesn't have a husband or sons to advocate for her, but apparently no relative either because that relative should be coming to advocate for her. No kinsman who can advocate for her. She's alone. And so she comes alone to plea for justice, which is just like a fool's errand, you would think. And the fact that justice is on her side doesn't amount to much because this judge doesn't fear God or respect mankind. He's got no personally beneficial reason to help this woman. All she had was her persistence. We don't know what her issue was. We just know that she had an adversary and she needed justice or protection or intervention. Okay? She didn't ask for vengeance. She asked for justice. And she kept asking and she kept coming. And she finally wore down this unjust judge and he gave her justice, not for any other reason than to just be rid of her. Not for justice sake, not for compassion's sake, only for his own selfish reasons. He didn't want to be worn down or worn out by her. He was tired of hearing her voice. Okay, courtrooms in the ancient Near East were more like some of the craziness on TV than the court system that oftentimes is somber and quiet. And it's one thing after, you know, it was, it was kind of chaotic. So if her voice is going to be heard, especially given her socioeconomic limitations, she's going to have to be heard. Like she's going to have to be like bugging loudly this judge. Okay, the language behind otherwise she'll wear me out is actually really strong language. It's language bo- borrowed from the boxing world. <laughs> you could actually translate it as something like otherwise she'll give me a black eye. Right hook with her purse. Okay? Paul used the same word in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I beat my body and make it my slave. So translators typically take this as figurative, okay, as hyperbole for wearing him down, but it could actually be literal. I mean, you can imagine this feisty, kind of plucky little woman <laughs> fearing no one, nothing to lose, you know, even this powerful judge, and she just repeatedly, you know, she suffered injustice. She comes in with her purse. I mean, you can imagine she threatened to hit him with it, you know? He meets him out back on the way to the camel after the long day on the bench. When are you going to give me justice? Okay. So, but seriously, he could end up with a black eye over the whole thing if she's threatening like that. And that would be really shameful. Oh, hey, Moshe, how'd you end up with that black eye? Uh, so to avoid all that, the woman, you know, let's just give her some justice and get her out of my hair. So that's the parable. And the point of it, again, don't forget the point of it. The point of it is that we must always pray and not lose heart. How does this parable make that point? Does it mean that, hey, we can wear God down and thus receive what we ask if we're persistent enough? Is that the point? No. Look at Jesus' interpretation of the parable in verses 6 to 8. The just judge and his chosen children, verses 6 to 8. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. 
at least quickly from the perspective of the one for whom a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So Jesus takes the parable and he now he makes his point. And the question is, how does this work? How does this parable help us pray as we must and not lose heart? How does that work? Well, it's a case of arguing from the lesser to the greater. Okay, we've seen this before. We saw it back in chapter 11, which was about prayer and the character of God. If you, though, you're evil, know how to good, 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 good gifts to your, give good gifts to your children, how much more? Your heavenly father. Same kind of argument. So if this, then how much more so that? If it's possible for a helpless widow to squeeze justice out of a jerk like that, then how much more so disciples with their God? Okay, so this parable of the judge with the widow, if you, you put yourself in your shoes, you're listening to Jesus, your disciple, listen to him talk about these things, some important Old Testament texts would come to mind. This has everything to do with the character of God. Just listen to three. There's a lot more, but these would have been rolling around the heads of the disciples. At least they should have been. They should be rolling around in our heads. I read through a a litany of these texts this morning early, and it was just so encouraging because this is the character of our God. So just listen to who's on the other end when you are praying. Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien, like a refugee, by giving him food and clothing. Psalm 68, 5, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. Or Psalm 146, 9, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. So this is who the helpless are dealing with when they're hurting and helpless and defenseless. We're dealing with an infinitely powerful God. He's able to answer our prayers. Remember the two things that petitionary prayer rides on back at the beginning. That it can be different. Is he able? And then secondly, (laughs) sorry, that it ought to be different and that he can be different, okay? So we're dealing with an infinitely powerful God. He's able. And then we're also dealing with an infinitely or incredibly loving God. He's willing, okay, to answer our prayers. So able, willing, this is character. Make sure you notice that Jesus is pointing here to a double case, not just a single case of lesser to the greater, but a double case of lesser to the greater. God is infinitely greater than this, you know, jerk of a judge. True. And we, in relation to our judge, are not merely just squeaky wheels that need grease. You know, if we squeak enough, he'll give us some grease. We are, if you are in Christ this morning, we are, as Jesus says, his own words, his elect. If for theological reasons that word bothers you, please get over that. It's a Bible word. And it's actually really good news. So just, if you get, if you kind of, pull that whole argument and debate into the picture, you're going to miss the grace here. This is really sweet. 
Jesus says his elect, his beloved, chosen children. So that jerk of a judge cared nothing for that woman. But our infinitely powerful and just and loving judge really loves his chosen children. You see how it's a double lesser to the greater? Does that make sense? Yes, no? Anybody? Okay. Just checking. So the point is not persistent works, you know, with a reluctant God. The point is also not merely how much more since God is just and gives justice even to us, you know, those he begrudgingly puts up with. No. This is the omnipotent God. He's able. And he's our father. He's dealing with his chosen beloved children. So does, should that reality have any bearing on us persevering in faith and not losing heart? Yes. Turn to Romans 8. Okay? We all know, if you've been in the church at all, you know Romans 8, 28. God caused all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But do you know why that is such a rock-solid promise? Look at where it goes from there. Okay, so Romans 8, verses 28 to 34. Look at the logic here. You've got to see the logic here. If we're going to persevere, if we're going to pray, namely depend on God, not give up, not lose heart, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, his elect chosen children. Why do we know that? Why can we bank on that? Why is that such a, a strong ironclad promise because those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and these whom he predestined he also called and these whom he called he also justified and these whom he justified he also glorified it's so certain he puts it in past tense even though it's out in the future nobody falls through those cracks What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? How about this for a, you know, argument from lesser to greater or whatever. Actually, it's greater to the lesser in this case. He who did not spare his own son, if he did the hardest thing, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So we shouldn't, grow weary and lose heart. We shouldn't throw up our hands and give up. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. We've got an advocate. Weak. If we're weak, suffering, equivalent of a widow, powerless against our adversaries, whatever they may be, sin, lies of the world, tough circumstances, We've got an advocate, Jesus Christ, the one who died. Yes, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Okay, so in this fallen world, if we know our weakness, if we know our proneness to wander, and we just see all the injustices and the persecution and all the struggles that we face, it is really easy to lose heart and get down. And so Jesus, this, this is right where we live. And so Jesus says, it's normal for my chosen children to cry to me day and night. 
point of the parable is we must always, day and night, cry day and night, always pray and not lose heart. Kind of like pray without ceasing. Other texts. So it's normal for God's children because we're displaced. This isn't home. We are broken at the sorrows and the suffering. We're outraged at the injustices and cruelty in the world. And we long for his kingdom to come. And so we cry to him day and night, Lord, your kingdom come. Your name be hallowed. I mean, the evening news, how about this for day and night? The evening news should lead us to pray. (laughs) The morning paper should lead us to pray. You could get down, right? You could lose heart. Well, how about like Luke 18 over your newspaper, Luke 18 over your television screen, Luke 18 over your internet news provider feed? It's great, day and night. Because we need to persevere. We're, we're going through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. It's hard in the wilderness. It's hot. It's dry. Wild animals. How are we going to make it? We must, we must always pray. Now, here's, here's the beginning of considering the nature of that must. If that sounds and feels like a burden to you right now, a heavy obligation Oh, no, I must. You're missing the point. Great. I, I don't have a great prayer life, whatever, whatever. That's weird. It's a weird way to talk. Oh, my prayer life. What, what is that? Is that something you live over here, disconnected from everything else? Like, do you pray? Do you talk to God? This is not complicated. He's a person. <laughs> like, this is just relationship with God we're talking about here. But we, I don't have a great prayer life. Great. You know, I feel bad enough about it already. Now the preacher's going to lay on the guilt trip. You guys need to pray more. You must pray more. No. That's not, that's not the point. That misses the point of the must. Our gracious God has given us a gift. He's given us free access. We're going through the wilderness. He's given us free access. Day or night. For thirsty souls going through the wilderness, he gives free access to living water anytime. Must I go and drink? I'm so busy. What? He gives us a gift of power for weak workers. You feel weak? What you got to do on your plate? Do I have to go and get some energy? What? Now, does God always answer our prayers in our way and our time? Of course not. In fact, that would be a really scary world if he actually did. Because guess who would be God? A bunch of little gods running around. And your prayers might be at odds with somebody else's prayers. So who wins? Praise God that God is God. And he's infinitely wise in his answering of prayers, whether it's yes, no, or wait. Okay? Can we just get discouraged at the delays? Of course we can. This vapor of life, it it is a vapor, folks. And eternity is really long, so it it really is quickly that he's going to bring the justice. But in the moment, from our worm's eye view, man, it doesn't feel like quickly. And we can get discouraged with the delays. So how kind of God... How kind of Jesus here. He knows this. He gives us gracious truth to help us persevere. Look at the end of verse 7. 
Will he delay long over them? I tell you, can you, can you trust Jesus' word? Does this mean anything? <laughs> the word of the king of kings? I tell you that he will bring justice. He will bring about justice for them quickly. He's not going to delay. He's going to bring it quickly. Our timetables may need to change, but justice will come. Wait for it. It will come. Bushan prayed for years for a Bible. He didn't have a Bible. He was so scared that he would forget the words that he knew by heart because he knew that was his only source of strength. He's crying out. He's crying out. He's crying out. Luke 18 is pretty real for someone like that. So, justice will come. Wait for it. It will come. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. My kingdom will soon come in its fullness. Life is a vapor. The question is not whether God will respond and bring about justice, but whether we will respond in persevering faith and not give up. That's the question that we're left with at the end of this text because you see where Jesus goes, how he closes this passage, this section. Look at verse 8. He closes with that question. Nevertheless, what will he find? What am I going to find? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Do you see the point? What is Jesus going to find when he returns? Will he find us awake? To use language of other similar texts in the book of Luke. Is he going to find us awake and alert and watching and praying? Like back in chapter 12. You can look at it later. Chapter 21. We'll get there. Or will he find us lulled to sleep and not ready for his return? It's going to be hard here in the wilderness. It's going to get harder. What will the delay in the fulfillment of the promises? We get the foretaste. We, we, we taste it. We want more. Your kingdom come. It comes a little bit, but not in its fullness. What will the delay in the fulfillment of the promises of God result in? Prayer and faith and patience or frustration, doubt, and indifference? Remember Matthew 24. This is why this is so important. So must-like in its urgency. On account of increased lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. Only he who endures to the end will be saved. So what's the Son of Man going to find? Jesus told this parable to tell us that we must always pray and not lose heart. So here, I want to end with asking a provocative question. I'm asking it this way on purpose because we really need to think about the nature of this must. Must you pray and not lose heart to be saved? Must you pray and not lose heart to go to heaven? Before you answer, I want you to think about some similar texts, okay? Just listen. I'm going to read several of them. First, Blessed are those slaves, this is Luke 12, which has some similar parallels as far as themes. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Can I ask you it this way? Must you stay awake to be saved? Spiritually speaking, like Luke 12. How about Luke 21? Keep on the alert at all times. That sounds really similar praying <laughs> that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Is that necessary? Is it necessary to keep on the alert? Or is this just advice? Must you do that? 
some other necessity language in the book of Luke. Listen, same word, okay? This is, if, if we knew Greek and we're reading through, we go, whoa, what's that doing there? That's like highlighted. Listen to a couple other must texts. Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. Was that necessary? Did that have to happen for us to be saved? For as the lightning flashes, as Luke 17, we just read it. Lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Was that necessary? How about this one? Luke 19 is really interesting. Jesus came to the place. He looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I, I must stay at your house today. Was that necessary for God's purposes to be fulfilled in Zac- Zacchaeus' life, for that to happen? Yeah, that was the plan that day. Yes, God could have done it another way at a different time, but that's the point there. There's others. Like, let me give you one more. Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, it's the road to Emmaus. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Was that necessary? Okay. Now, we must talk about the nature of this must, okay? I've kind of touched on it, pointed at it, but now we're going to deal with it directly. Um, there was a, a Christian apologist, and he became president of Fuller Seminary back in the late 50s. He, he wrote a book, um, and, and there's a powerful quote in there, an illustra- illustration. He says this, Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. What she means is, this is, I'm still quoting him, unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of all moral value. Did you catch that? This is really, really important stuff. Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. What she means is this, unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of all moral value. So the title of the message is, you must pray. Must you pray to go to heaven? You must, but not that kind of must. Not the one you're worried that I might be thinking, toying with. Not must in order to be saved, as if it's some work, well, we need to log enough hours, you know? Like, he's keeping track. And if you don't log enough hours, you're not going to get in. So you must pray. No. But must in order to persevere. This is a divinely intended means to keep us. Not must in order to gain salvation, but must in this sense. Those who lose heart and give up are those who do not truly believe. Must you eat to survive? Yes, but do you see it's not that kind of must? Nobody is going, oh, I must eat today. Again, this is such a burden. So how do you hear this must? Is this a gracious, loving command or is it a burden command? So, so this morning, I know I wanted to pray for our president. 
And I had run across had seen this blog post that was a prayer, and I thought there were some good thoughts in there, and I wanted to just remind myself of it. And on the site where that blog is housed, I, I went to this different place in the site, and up came this post, so I think it's providential. Um, it's a quote from a John Piper sermon. Um, this is really, really helpful, and it's just what I'm trying to say with this must thing, what Jesus is saying with this must thing. The hard truth is that most Christians don't pray very much. They pray at meals, unless they're still stuck in the adolescent stage of calling good habits legalism. They whisper prayers before tough meetings. They say something brief as they crawl in the bed, but very few set aside set, set times to pray alone, and fewer still think it is worth it to meet with other, others to pray. And we wonder why our faith is weak and our hope is feeble and our passion for Christ is small. And meanwhile, the devil is whispering all over this room, the pastor's getting legalistic now. He's starting to use guilt now. He's, using, he's getting out the law now. To which I say, to hell with the devil in all his destructive lives. Be free. Is it true that intentional, regular, disciplined, earnest, Christ-dependent, God-glorifying, joyful prayer is a duty? Do I go to pray with many of you? And he lists some of their corporate prayer times. Out of duty? Is it a discipline? You could call it that. It's a duty the way it's a duty. It's the duty of a scuba diver to put on his air tank before he goes underwater. It's a duty the way pilots listen to air traffic controllers. It's a duty the way soldiers in combat clean their rifles and load their guns. It's a duty the way hungry people eat food. It's a duty the way thirsty people drink water. It's a duty the way a deaf man puts in his hearing aid. It's a duty the way a diabetic takes his insulin. It's a duty the way Pooh Bear looks for honey. It's a duty the way pirates look for gold. I think he's just trying to, you know, reach everyone in their context. Okay. He says, I hate the devil and the way he is killing some of you by persuading you it's legalistic to be as regular in your prayers as you are in your eating and sleeping and internet use. Do you not see what a sucker he's making out of you? He's laughing up his sleeve at how easy it is to deceive Christians about the importance of prayer. God has given us means of grace, and if we do not use them to their fullest advantage, our complaint against him will not stick. If we don't eat, we starve. If we don't drink, we get dehydrated. If we don't exercise a muscle, it atrophies. If we don't breathe, we suffocate. And just as there are physical means of life that are necessary, there are spiritual means of grace that are necessary. A must. That's the nature of the must. So this is what I had planned on saying. Okay, I hadn't planned on saying that. But imagine your child wanders out into the traffic. If you don't have a child, imagine you have a child. And the child's young. Then imagine a mother and father that are sitting on the porch observing this. What would you think if that mother turned to that father and said, must I go and pull little Johnny back from wandering into the street? What do you make of that must? Let's say they say, yes, we must. And they go and they do it. Did they do the right thing? What if the impulse that really got her off the porch was the legal ramifications of child endangerment if the neighbors saw her fail to respond. You know, good Samaritan law. It's a must, but not the right kind of must. Or what if a child, your child, sorry, children illustrations, your child throws up in the night. 
You hear this. Mother and father warmly tucked in the bed. What if the father turns to the mother and asks, must we go and clean up little Susie? Yes, we must. So, do you see the nature of this? If we view the must in, in the way of some sort of weird duty and not like God giving water to thirsty people, God giving food to hungry people, then this is going to be a burden command rather than a love command. And maybe what we really need is we need to realize we're more like that widow than we feel. Maybe we need to get weaker and powerless so that God is our only hope and resource. Maybe we need to know and kind of get in touch with how much is against us, how helpless we are against our own flesh and against the world and its allurements, its false promises and lies and against the devil and spiritual warfare. Maybe we need to see how unrighteous we are and how much in need of mercy we are. Do you know what the next parable is? It's really interesting. It's the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. So you, gotta have, you must pray. Like you must be this spiritual superman. Not lose heart. Stoic. Oh, no. You must depend. You must. <laughs> you must realize that you are a sinner and you just beat your breast for mercy because you have no other claim than God's kindness. You need to get in touch with your need. So we need not just gospel rehearsal. I need to remember things. We actually need gospel reenactment. Okay? That kind of need for mercy didn't just happen the first day when you first became a Christian. That is needed every day of our lives. Okay? So we can't read this and apply it apart from the cross. The willingness, the ability of God is explosively, finally revealed to us at the cross. If he didn't spare his own son, but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also with with him meet us in our moments of need? We must pray. If we're in touch with our need and we're in touch with his grace, we must pray. So the widow, she believed that things ought to be different and she believed things could be different even in her impossible situation. So she kept asking and she didn't lose heart. What about us? What do we believe? Is God able? Is he willing? Are you struggling with that? God's ability, God's willingness, his care. Do you want to know how able God is? Do you want to know how willing God is? Look to Jesus. You know that word for elect in, in you know, his elect children in our passage? It's one other place it's used in Luke. And it's in chapter 23, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, right after he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They cast lots, dividing up his garments among them. And people stood looking by, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one, his elect one. So are you feeling like God's forgotten about you in your scenario? You feel like he doesn't hear your prayers? Feel like you want to give up? Are you doubting his willingness to help you? Look to Jesus. Take those doubts to Jesus. Jesus was the elect one, the chosen one of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And when he asked, 
that the cup be taken? The answer was no. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer was silence. And all of that so that those of us, you and me, who deserve the justice of God, condemnation, we could be redeemed and adopted and become his beloved chosen children so that we could become his elect who cry to him day and night because we know our need and we know his grace because we're longing for his kingdom to come because we see how ugly it is here in this world because we long to see the days of the son of man because it's hard and because we know our father is good So if we, though we're evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will our Heavenly Father give good gifts, the Holy Spirit, to those who keep asking and seeking and knocking? If we do, we must. If we do, if we keep asking and seeking, we'll receive the grace we need, and we will find that when He returns, He will find us ready. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this would not be a burdensome command, but that we would see that this is a loving command. And I pray that we wouldn't mechanically respond with some sort of formula, but that you, by your grace, would put us in touch with our need that we would remember your character, that you are so good, you're so strong, and you're so able and willing to help us. And I pray that it would just well up in humble dependence and that it would keep us from losing heart and throwing, throwing up our hands and throwing in the towel. In Jesus' name, amen.